1: Hello and welcome to a spring edition of the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors, based here at Wisley in Surrey. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that this is a podcast made by people who know and love gardening, for people who love gardening, and who would like to know even more. Coming up in this edition... Beautiful butterflies, how you can transform your garden into a must-visit destination for these delightful but vulnerable pollinators, and help protect the most endangered species. Plus, we have a lowdown on the most problematic plant diseases for British gardeners, and how to protect your treasured plants. Plus, as always, we'll give you the latest news of RHS events and attractions. But first, let's go outside and join the horticultural teams here at Wisley to hear what key jobs they're tackling in the gardens this spring.
2: My name's Paul Cattell. I'm team leader for edibles here at RHS Garden Wisley. As March progresses, we turn our attention to mulching. Before the weeds start to poke their heads through the soil and, and get a grip, and we get the mulch on. Nice thick mulches. We use um, a variety of things here at Wisley, so things that like it slightly more uh, on the acidic side. So I'm thinking perhaps fruits like the blueberries and the raspberries. Uh, We're using a bracken mulch compost. And then it's garden compost for uh, our other crops, so around uh, blackcurrants, redcurrants, gooseberries for example. We'll get a nice thick mulch of Wisley Garden compost. That traps the moisture in and keeps the weeds at bay as well. The spaces in between the crops will be then putting a bark mulch down, which uh, will effectively form a path for us to walk on and get access to those crops as well, where we, we don't really need the nutrition. So as we reach the end of March, um, we're going to be sowing uh, some a slight shows some of the crops will keep sowing throughout the year so um, we'll do more beetroot we'll do more lettuce um, these things you can successionally sow but other crops we wait until the end of march before we we get them going so under heat so in a bit of a heated glass house on a nice warm bench we're starting off uh, tomatoes uh, such as orange queen and crystal other crops are un- underway undercover as well into seed trays or into modular trays, sunflowers, marigolds, cosmos for a bit of ornamental value and bring pollinators into the garden. Uh, But also crops like lettuce, calabrese, coriander, rocket and lettuce, all those kind of things will keep being sown. And of course it's time to plant out our potatoes, the first earliest that we've been chitting, they'll be going out towards the end of March, It will be a perfect time to get those in, have a lovely early crop of salad potatoes um, in June. Um, feels a bit like June at occasions today with that sunshine. The weeds will also be getting a hold, won't they? So hopefully with all our mulching, there'll be very few weeds, but in between the rows of crops in the vegetable garden, they'll be starting to show, so we'll be busy with a hoe by the end of March, just hoeing them off at a very young stage, so they don't become a problem. we get lots of of weeds out in a very short space of time. If we have weather like this, fantastic day to, to be doing some hoeing, so you can hoe them off and leave them on the surface and they just wither away as they dry out. Towards the end of March, all of our winter crops will have finished, really, from the garden. So we'll, be, we'll have taken out our Brussels sprouts and our leeks. That'll have come to the end, and it'll be the thoughts of next year's crops that are getting underway that we'll be harvesting during the winter later on this year.
1: As always, you can find more information and practical advice about what to do in your garden at this time of year at rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. There, you can also find guides to key seasonal jobs, video tutorials and much more. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, in our last podcast, we gave you a rundown of the top 10 pests that had been proving the most problematic for gardeners in 2016. If you missed it, you can listen again to episode 100 on the RHS website or iTunes. Today we're visiting the plant pathology department here at Wisley to find out which diseases were the most prevalent last year, which problems are new or on the increase and what steps can gardens take to protect their precious plants. Here's Matthew Cromie.
3: I'm Matthew Cromie, the principal plant pathologist at the RHS based at Wisley. At the RHS in the science department we produce a top 10 list of top 10 pests, top 10 diseases each year. That's based on members enquiries so it's it's not All of the things they're concerned about is the things that they ask us, what's wrong with my plant? So they tend to be the things that they're not sure about, that they're particularly concerned about. So top 10, honey fungus is always number one because uh, people worry about it when a tree dies. So trees and shrubs has a very wide host range. Quite a lot of trees and shrubs will die. And in fact, um, this last year, in 2016, we recorded honey fungus on 70 different host genera. So that's a pretty wide host range. That's the big problem with it. Most diseases tend to be fairly specific to one host. Honey fungus attacks a lot of them. It's a root disease and uh, ends up killing plants quite often. So that's the big, the big issue for gardeners. The first thing they'll, they'll notice with honey fungus is probably, especially in the summer when things get dry, they'll, they'll notice that their plant dies back very suddenly. It's a root disease. Not many people are digging around looking at the roots. They notice the above ground. So they'll notice that, that, that the branches are dying back the leaves are dying pretty rapidly and it's a rapid death and that's the point at which the, the plant has been able to cope with losing some of its root system. Weather gets hotter, it gets drier, then suddenly it can no longer cope and it's a relatively quick death. Number two, Phytophthora diseases. So generally root diseases, not all root diseases. There are some pretty nasty foliar phytophthora diseases around. But most of our, our inquiries are about the root diseases. Similar sort of situation. Uh, they knock out parts of the root system and at some the point will come when a tree or a shrub can no longer cope with the, the loss of that root system and again starts to die back reasonably quickly. Uh, so box blight. Box blight's number three. It's generally in the top two or three. Uh, again, box is a pretty structural archetypal plant in in UK gardens. Um, The way we grow box tends to make it relatively conducive to box blight. Box blight is a a fungal disease, likes very high humidity. When we clip box, we're creating a plant that's very dense with very high humidity. So the way we grow box tends to exacerbate the issue. Um, And the other thing about box is that when we grow a box parterre or a box topiary, it needs to look perfect we don't want a bit of it dying off here or there, Uh, so as soon as it starts to look bad then uh, we get the the inquiries coming in, is this the dreaded box blight? Sometimes it's not, Um, there's quite a lot of cases we see where for instance there's a favourite spot where dogs urinate and they do it in the same spot. It'll die back. It'll look a bit similar to box blight. So it's really important that gardeners know is it box blight they've got or not. If they've got box blight, it's a pretty pretty serious disease. Uh, they need to deal with it. If it's a dog problem, then it's a it's a different issue, or even a fox problem. Okay, so uh, rust diseases. They made their way into number four. In the last year, so rust diseases covers a wide range of diseases. Each of them are pretty specific to certain hosts. But probably one that's worth uh, talking a little bit about is pear rust, because that's something that's really increased a lot in the last two or three years. Um, It's increased as a concern for gardeners partly because there are no longer any fungicides that gardeners can use. So, in the old days, people could spray their 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 fruit trees. Now they can't. Um, Ornamental trees they can, but the fruit trees they can't. So that might be one of the reasons that it's starting to get more common. It's also an interesting fungus because uh, the, the rust fungus has two hosts. So it survives on junipers and it survives on pears, and it moves between the two. Uh, so we don't really know why it's getting more severe, but every year it's getting it's getting worse at the moment. Possibly the relationship between junipers and pears, possibly the amount of pear, and possibly the environment has just been really conducive to to the disease. If you want to see more about the top ten lists, then you can Google it, find it on our website. That will give all the information on, on where all the different diseases and pests sit on the list. And then they also have links to, the, to our profiles on pests and diseases. So that's where you can actually get some information on how to deal with some of those issues.
1: You can find more information on all the diseases discussed, plus disease prevention and treatment,
4: on the advice pages of the RHS website. Hello, my name is Anna Platoni, I'm an entomologist and butterfly expert for the Royal Horticultural Society. There are 56 species of British butterflies um, and a few more that um, are not resident in the UK but will come to visit. Um, and many more moths as well, which are in the same family as butterflies. So apart from being lovely to see in your garden on a summer's day, butterflies actually have some important roles in the ecosystem. One of the things is they're a good indicator species, so scientists use them as visible species that they can then infer and make assumptions about what else is happening to maybe less flashy um, and harder to find species. If you've got a lot of butterflies, it's a good indicator of a healthy ecosystem. They're also at the base of a food chain, an important food chain. Caterpillars, which are the young stages of butterflies, um, are eaten by birds, bats, um, insectivorous mammals, um, and blue tits, for example, are estimated to eat about 50 billion moth caterpillars a year. In different areas of the country, you get different butterflies. Probably about three quarters of British butterflies um, are what we call sort of habitat Specialists, they stay quite often in small to sweet colonies and the adults don't tend to fly about much. Um, However, a quarter of the species um, are more mobile and these are the ones you're most likely to see um, in your garden. Many butterflies are at the northern limits of their European ranges in the UK, and that means that in the south there tends to be perhaps more species and then fewer as you move northwards. With climate change, however, many butterflies are finding more suitable climate further north, and you're getting um, maybe some increases in range. Um, so greater diversity coming um, to North and even into Scotland. Some of the most common butterflies that you might see in your garden are things like the peacock butterfly, which has um, big eye spots on the back of its wings and um, used to startle predators. Um, the brimstone butterfly, um, which whose caterpillars feed on buckthorns in um, hedgerows. Um, and also things like the comma butterfly um, which is a really distinctive butterfly um, which has um, the wings look tatty on the on the edges um, so yeah you can hardly miss them In urban gardens, you're likely to see some of the more mobile species such as peacocks and commas, holly blues. If you go to a woodland, you'll get to see another set of butterflies, so the speckled wood is a lovely example of a woodland butterfly. If you're out and about, like grassland butterflies, um, so things like the marbled white. Many British butterfly species are at risk and declining. Butterfly conservation, which is one of the um, charities that does research. Last release stats in 2015 called *State of Britain's Butterflies*, and they showed that 70% of species are actually declining. So, since three quarters of British butterflies um, are in decline, um, gardeners can really make a difference um, to some of these butterflies, especially in urban areas, um, by the way that they manage their garden and to help encourage butterflies. And when you do this, you're also encouraging um, other wildlife into your garden. So, some examples of things you can do is plant Planting plenty of flowers for the adults, and having um, the main thing really is having um, flowers available for the adults um, from spring um, right into the sort of the end of the butterfly season, the first frost in sort of October. Um, That that's really great if there's always something available to them. Um, Another thing you can do—it's harder, but um, harder to do well—but it's a really nice thing to um, do—is if you can provide some food plants for the caterpillars. So each butterfly species. Will lay their eggs and their caterpillars will feed on one or maybe several closely related species of plant. So things like Stinging nettle are eaten by the common butterfly and by the peacock butterfly by their caterpillars. So if you can grow some stinging nettles in your garden in a sheltered sunny spot, then you can really attract attract some butterflies in that way. Cabbages are a great caterpillar plant to have, even if many gardeners don't like. The large white and the small white, they are great plants for their caterpillars and great to show to kids as well. If you've got some um, cabbages in the garden, you can um, almost certainly find some caterpillars there. Other things you can do towards the end of the season, some butterflies will be overwinter as adults will be fueling up to get themselves through the winter. So um, leaving fallen fruit can be really attractive. Um, like red admirals, for example, quite often will visit gardens for fallen fruit and leaving some sheltered areas that they then may wish to overwinter in. If you love butterflies, don't miss the stunning Butterfly
1: Dome at the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show this July. It's a tropical dome filled with colourful flowers and free-flying butterflies, and you can witness their life cycle as they emerge from cocoons in our specially installed observatory. Pure magic. The show runs from the 4th to the 9th of July, and tickets are on sale through our website now. And finally... No matter how many times you visit Wisley, or in my case, how long you've worked here, the garden never fails to surprise and delight. Each time you take a stroll in the grounds, a different plant or flower captivates you. In a brand new monthly series, James Armitage, the RHS Principal Scientist of Horticultural Taxonomy, is going to turn his attention to some of the seasonal stars of the beds and borders in a fascinating series of plant portraits, this month he's talking about Lathrea clandestina, the strange and beautiful purple toothwort.
5: As the weather warms in late March, an intriguing plant can be seen at RHS Garden Wisley. With the ousting of the last pale patches of frost, in damp hollows and along shady drainage channels, massed colonies of curving, claw-like flowers, leafless and livid violet, swarm in clamouring profusion. This is purple toothwort, Lathrea clandestina, a parasitic relative of ivy broom rape and yellow rattle. The shiny flowers emerge from a bed of tiny grey scales, the vestiges of foliage, and make an arresting sight on an early spring walk. The luxuriance of this display is afforded not by the plant itself, but by the host whose rooted suckles. In this way, parasites are the aristocrats of the vegetable world, grown fat on in the industry of others, decked out in unearned finery. The largest single flower in the world belongs to a parasite, Ruflesia arnoldii a bloom said, unhappily, to smell of decomposing fish. In its native setting, purple toothwort makes its way in life along the western fringes of continental Europe, an unusual cohabitant with the willows, alders, and other denizens of the riparian habitats it favours. Similar plant communities can be found in abundance in the British Isles, and it is perhaps only the vagaries of post-glacial redistribution that prevents the species from claiming native status. As waters rose with the retraction of the ice sheets at the end of the last ice age around 12,000 years ago, the British Isles, which had been attached to mainland Europe, became isolated once more. Only a subset of the plants and animals ecologically suited to British conditions made it as far as its western extremity before the moat was inundated. Purple Toothwort was not among them. It was as late as the mid-1880s that the species finally made the short trip over from Belgium or France In April 1889, a plant was reported at Livermere Park, Suffolk, throwing up several strong growths, having been planted a few years previously. A month later it was stated that it was successfully growing on the roots of a willow at Kew Gardens. Sometime before 1908, with a little assistance, it made the leap from cultivated plant to feral fugitive when it was deliberately planted by an unknown hand at Coe Fenn in Cambridgeshire. It has since established itself in a number of scattered locations as far north as central Scotland. Its presence at Wisley was noted first in 1933, when Frederick J. Chittenden, once the director of the garden, recorded that it was growing under the willow by the pond. It can still be found there now, but has transferred itself to a new host, a dawn redwood. In general, as a plant of cultivation, it displays more Catholic tastes than in the wild state, and elsewhere in the garden can be found growing on Gunnera, Rhododendron, and Kaluna, among others. Its spread has been aided by the possession of explosive seed pods, the famous Edwardian gardener E.A. Bowles of Middleton House was known to rouse slumbering participants at RHS committee meetings with carefully directed Lathraea seeds. Despite its macabre charms, purple tooth wort is still not a common garden plant. It is mostly encountered as curio in the collections of our more eccentric horticulturists, passed around as a shovel full of roots. The process of establishment is hit and miss. Once a potential host has been identified, the soil should be cleared until a strong root is found. A generous portion of Lothrae rhizome can then be introduced, ensuring good contact, and then all there is to do is wait. Some authorities suggest infection is favoured by bruising the host with a mallet.
1: James Armitage. Listen out for his next plant portrait in April. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this podcast. We'll be back next month. Until then, remember you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the podcast team, thank you for listening and goodbye.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, i found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride on mower and bought a top of the range Cress robotic lawn mower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride on sooner with the cress robotic lawn mower. the lawn is actually looking better.